Yes, Buck fans, this is the podcast that takes you back through all the best games, moments, and players in the history of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This is the BuckPower.com podcast. Now, here's the unofficial team historian and your host from BuckPower.com, it's Paul Stewart. Since 1976, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have drafted 433 players, from Leroy Selman to Grant Stewart. They've selected 34 quarterbacks, 61 offensive linemen and 55 running backs, along with 55 wide receivers. On defence, 67 linemen have been chosen, 56 linebackers and 72 defensive backs. They've also called the names of 8 kickers and 5 punters. Some of those 433 have been great selections, some not so great, and some downright disasters. Many picks have been traded, but this episode is just going to deal with actual Buccaneer selections, the excellent choices and the draft busts. Welcome to the BuckPower.com podcast. With the first pick in the NFL draft, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers select... We have a great panel of Buccaneer people on this podcast. And first up, on account that he scored 592 more points than anybody else here, is former Bucs kicker Martin Gramatska. Martin, welcome. Thank you, Paul. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. And from the Bucs sideline, we've got TJ Reeves. Always great to be with you, Scoop, especially when we're talking draft and the nostalgia. I love it. And we've got former Tampa Tribune Bucks beat writer Roy Cummings here. Good to be with you, Paul. Thanks for letting me be a part of it. I appreciate it. And we've got Jason Powers joining us as well this evening. Paul, how you doing, sir? Great to have you here, Jason. From a fan's perspective, we've got Scott Bradford from Bucks Life. Yes, thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure being here. And last but not least, Buccaneer historian Dennis Crawford. Well, thank you for having me. As I as I look around this digital room, I feel a lot like Admiral James Stockdale back in the 1992 vice presidential debate. Who am I and why am I here? I just, I feel out of place, but thank you for having me. On this podcast, we are going to tell the story behind some of the most famous and infamous selections dating back to 1976. What it is like to get that phone call from the Bucks saying you'll be a Buccaneer and what it's actually like to be at the NFL draft in person. But to start us off on the right foot, who is the best Buccaneer draft selection of all time? Roy, who do you have? You know, looking at it in a bigger picture, I'm going to say Leroy Selman. Because not only was he their first pick, he was arguably one of the best picks they ever made, ever. Um, Because much like some of the other players that followed, but more than any of them, he became a pillar in this community uh, here in Tampa Bay. So not only was Leroy Selman the first real face of the franchise, along with John McKay, obviously, but not only was he the first real face of the franchise, he was the first Pro Bowler, first Hall of Famer, and then he became, as I said, a pillar of the community. I mean, they've named a highway after him. 
He did so much great work at uh, USF, uh, did a lot of great work at the banks here in Tampa. Um, he was the first guy to really become a Buccaneer and then give back to the community in a special way. And, you know, I, I think that has to count for something. And um, so I'm going to say Leroy Selman. Uh, boy, it, not that it was ever all downhill from there, but uh, they certainly uh, found a diamond and uh, that one, not necessarily in the rough, but uh, a diamond for sure. What's quite funny is in that first season, the Bucks and the Seahawks had a coin toss to decide who would have the first pick in the college draft and who would have the first pick in the expansion draft. And I think the Bucks were really glad they lost that Seattle had the first pick in the expansion draft, which was, wasn't anywhere near as good, and they got to take Selman. Yeah, it, it set the tone for the franchise for, for years to come, that it was going to be a defensive-oriented team. Um, obviously, they had to catch up offensively in order to win a Super Bowl. But, hey, we all remember that uh, what we used to call the Orange Crush defense uh, before it became the, the real moniker in, uh, in Denver, but it fit here as well. And we remember that was what got that team to the playoffs the first time, along with Doug Williams, a quarterback. So um, no question, uh, Leroy Selman, uh, a, a pillar of the franchise and of the community here in Tampa. 1995, the Bucks had what could probably be described as the two greatest consecutive picks they'll ever make. TJ, what do you remember about that? My goodness. I don't, I don't think it's probably. I think it absolutely is the two greatest consecutive picks. They're both in the Hall of Fame. They helped this team win a Super Bowl, turned it around uh, for the second time from worst to first. So at that time, I'm doing five-day-a-week afternoon sports radio, not for the official Buck Station or the Buccaneer Radio Network, uh, Paul, but instead doing it for the old 820 AM, the sports station in the Tampa Bay area, and we had uh, we had long decided and promoted we were going to do a Saturday day long draft show in and out of the coverage with me and with a couple of other hosts that were going to be uh, covering whatever happened in the first round of the draft. So what I vividly remember is we're at a sports bar and I'll even name it. It's gone out of business. It's, it's not far uh, from where Raymond James Stadium is. The sports bar was called Primetime Sports Bar, not named after Deion Sanders. So we got to primetime sports bar in anticipation of the draft beginning around noon Eastern time, noon local time. I was there an hour before, probably 11 a.m. and ate a little bit of food. And we knew this was going to be a long first round, a long day. But the Buccaneers were picking what seventh. So we figured the Buccaneer picks going to come somewhere around one or one thirty. Then we'll kind of maybe have to pay attention. But man, it became it became fairly apparent we were going to be there for a while. Because the Buccaneers make a trade with the Philadelphia Eagles. I, I vividly remember we had been debating uh, throughout that week that if Warren Sapp is available, you got to take a strong look at him because the Buccaneers needed defensive help uh, in the worst way. And in no way, shape, or form was the name Mike Mamula being kicked around scoop on Tampa Bay Sports Radio, the Boston College defensive lineman. But the Eagles were just in love with him because of how he had worked out at the scouting combine. And they made a trade with the Buccaneers so that the Bucs could move out of the seventh spot and the Eagles could go get a guy that I don't think Tampa Bay and Rich McKay and Sam Weich even seriously were considering taking at that spot. And then, of course, the uh, Bucs used that pick, the extra pick they got from the Eagles and another second round pick to move back <laughs> into the first round. They kept you busy that day, TJ. 
Oh, there's no doubt. So, so in the chronology, the Eagles take the Buccaneers pick and we have to wait again. This, this was still in the era where they were taking 15 minutes in between picks. We had to wait literally like another hour and a half before Warren Sapp got picked. And if you remember, and Buck fans will remember this, and you can kind of go back and see some of this in the uh, YouTube footage of it, if they have it there, Warren Sapp is, is sweating. Uh, figuratively and literally he's in the green room there's all these rumors about background problems for him why is his draft stock dropping blah 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 and then the Buccaneers eventually take him with the 12th pick and he's relieved and he's highly motivated and by this time now it's literally like three or three thirty in the afternoon and I'm eating again I'm eating again at prime time uh there with my radio colleagues and there's there's probably 50 to 75 Buccaneer fans and folks that are in there and everybody's ah oh, then when they take sap and I'm thinking, okay, maybe things are going to slow down the rest of the afternoon, the rest of the evening while we're hanging there. And lo and behold, Rich McKay is wheeling and dealing because they they very much wanted Derek Brooks. But the Brooks pick came, what did you say, 22? 20, 26. So, 26. So that that's easily two and a half or three hours after the SAP pick with how long they're taking. My point to you, my friend, is I could have taken up residence and had mail delivered as long as we were there, we had like brunch, we had late lunch, we had dinner at that place, and the draft is still going on, and finally it's double nickel, 55 Derek Brooks. Man, oh man, just, uh, I mean, a phenomenal draft just right there because you look at the rest of the draft picks in, in 95, there's nothing remarkable that's there. But Warren Sapp and Derek Brooks in the first round, hello, I remember it like it was yesterday. Are you, you try, are you trying to get sympathy that you had to spend the whole afternoon in a sports bar? Not just the whole afternoon, the whole afternoon, the whole evening. I mean, I, we were literally there nine hours probably until at least eight o'clock. And it's still the first round of the draft at like seven or seven 30. And of course they then made Warren Sapp and Derek Brooks available to the media, like on the phone. And I think, I think we talked to Derek Brooks, the Buccaneers made him available where we could talk to him on the phone. He was not at the draft in New York, but wherever he was watching the draft, we actually talked to him and remember this, so much criticism, and there had been debate all that week, can he play linebacker? How ridiculous does that sound right now on the Buck Power uh, Draft Preview Podcast? Can Derek Brooks play linebacker in the NFL? Is he heavy enough? Is he big enough to stop the run? This is one of the great linebackers of the last 30 years in the NFL, and there was such debate, is he going to be a safety Is he going to play safety after he played linebacker with the Buccaneers? Uh, It worked out. It it, uh, obviously worked out because they were immediately able to change the culture in the defensive side of the room over the course of two or three years uh, and eventually won a Super Bowl with those two guys leading the way. What have kicker Darren Alcorn and linebacker Grant Stewart got in common? They're both irrelevant. Mr. Irrelevant, to be exact. Since 1976, the final selection in the NFL draft has so been honoured, and twice it has been a Buccaneer. Now, seventh-round compensatory picks mean it may no longer always be the defending Super Bowl champions having this player, but Alcorn was the final pick in 1993, and Stewart the final pick of the draft 12 months ago. Now, Darren Alcorn was cut in training camp that year in favour of Michael Husted, and his other claim to fame was winning a World Bowl with the Frankfurt Galaxy two years later. 
Grant Stewart played all 17 games last season, primarily on special teams, but saw enough regular defensive action to record 12 tackles. He's not irrelevant for the Buccaneers anymore. Dennis, one pick you know a lot about was the first pick of the 1978 draft, a quarterback from Grambling named Doug Williams. Yes, and this was actually not just an important draft choice for Tampa Bay. Uh, This was an important draft choice for the National Football League. Uh, Williams was one of three highly rated quarterbacks. It was not a very strong quarterback draft. The others were uh, Guy Benjamin, uh, who had some success under Bill Walsh at Stanford, and Matt Cavanaugh, who had uh, just recently won a national championship for the uh, University of Pittsburgh. Um, So Williams was actually rated lower than them on many draft boards. Um, There was concerns about the level of competition at Grambling and some concerns over whether he could actually develop the touch that was necessary in the NFL because he had a cannon arm. There was no doubt about his arm strength, but it was whether or not he could tame it. Um, They raved about his intelligence, uh, particularly Joe Gibbs. Uh, who was instrumental in the drafting of Williams. Uh, Gibbs actually went to Grambling and spent, I think, about a week or so uh, with Doug shadowing him. You know, he went to classes with him. He actually went to the elementary school uh, that Doug Williams interned at because uh, Doug Williams was, I believe, a physical education major and was getting his teaching certificate. Gibbs just became enamored with the way Williams handled himself with children, handled his schoolwork. Uh, they had a skull session at a blackboard where uh, Gibbs laid out the Bucks offense, which, as we know, at that time was not too intricate. Uh, and he was just amazed at Williams's ability to see everything that was going to come. So uh, that 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 pretty much sold John McKay. John McKay trusted uh, Gibbs's opinion on that. So they they draft him and so this is the not the first black quarterback taken the uh the first black quarterback who was actually taken in the draft was uh eldridge dickey back in 1968 he played i believe it was for tennessee state and the oakland raiders drafted him but they immediately switched him over to wide receiver uh because they had uh Ken Stabler, George Blanda, and the, sadly, the recently deceased uh, Daryl LaMonica. Um, but other than that, there, there wasn't really a lot of sustained success with black quarterbacks. You had, um, you had Marlon Briscoe, who started in the American Football League for a couple of years before he became a wide receiver. Uh, you had Joe Gilliam, who actually, a lot of people don't remember, opened the 1974 season as a starter for the Pittsburgh Steelers and led them to a record of four, one and one, but he never followed the game plan. So Chuck Noll benched him and Terry Bradshaw ends up leading the Steelers to the Super Bowl. And uh, Doug Williams's predecessor at Grambling, James Harris led the Rams to a few playoff appearances, but injuries kept short circuiting his career. So there's not a track record of success. And so the Buccaneers throwing everything into drafting and developing a black man to be quarterback is a very historically significant moment and also I don't think the Buccaneers get enough credit for also starting a black quarterback before Williams and Parnell Dickinson so you know this is this is a really big deal 
I think it's a shame that people around the NFL remember Doug Williams for being the first black quarterback drafted in the first round like that. I, I wanted to remember him as a good quarterback who was drafted at the right time. And McKay always said, you know, he didn't care about colour, which was fantastic. And I just wish more people would remember Doug as a quarterback, not a black quarterback. And that's just not, that, that's around the NFL in general. Yeah, well, but it's also it's also a product of the time. Uh, the late 1970s, uh, we are not as progressive as we would like to have been uh, at that time uh, when it comes to providing opportunities. Uh, for just the best player, you know, we, we were only 10, uh, 10, uh, 10 seasons or so removed from uh, having quotas, you know, you could only have so many black players on the team. And then there was this belief that positions in the middle of the field, the center, the quarterback, the middle linebacker, those had to be white players because they were just more intellectually suited for these leadership position so we're only 10 years removed from that uh when Williams is drafted and just to focus on him as a as a player looking up some of his college statistics it was absolutely amazing he was a winner uh he started 40 games at Grambling and won 35 of them in his 1977 senior season the Grambling offense averaged 42 points per game and he's coming to a Bucks team that I think averaged half a point a game at home in the 1977 uh, season. Uh, he threw 41 touchdown passes. He's an All-American. Um, as his coach, Eddie uh, Robinson, said, he, he's apple pie. He is the best thing uh, that he has ever seen in his uh, professional career. So it's a no-brainer. I'm actually surprised that he lasted until number 17. Um, the Buccaneers really got lucky in that regard because why wasn't he a top 10 draft choice? John McKay argues it was because he was black is why he didn't go in the top 10, but um, who, who knows? Who knows why? Um, but he was there and the rest, as they say, is history. He was the right quarterback at the right time for the Buccaneers. Martin. Going into the 99 draft, what was it like? Had you been contacted by many teams? Were you expecting to be drafted highly? Well, I, I had, you know, the mock drafts had me uh, between second and fourth round. So I felt that that was the range. Um, and then after the combine, you know, in the combine, you talked to pretty much every team. But there was one time I got a phone call from Joe Marciano. This is the only time because they, they didn't come scout me. They had Mark Dominic, the, the area scout, come watch me at school. But I didn't never met Rich McKay. I never met Joe Marciano, Tony Dungy before the draft. Like they, and he told me the reason they did that because they were very interested and they didn't want anybody to realize and know that they were. Uh, but Joe Marciano pretty much told me uh, how the draft was going to go if, if, if it were to fall in that place. They didn't tell me who they're going to take in the first round, but they're like, we like this quarterback, Sean King. And if he's available, we're going to take him in the second round. If not, there's a possibility that we may take you in the second round. So I was hoping Sean King would go somewhere else, you know, so I could go, go a little higher. Uh, and then if you're available after we take Sean King, we'd take you in the third round. So, I mean, I, obviously you, you, I was excited about that, but I just, you just never know what, what could happen. But for me, being drafted to the Bucks was coming home. You know, I had Bills playing at USF. Santiago ended up playing at USF. So 
I mean, obviously you go anywhere when you get drafted, but if I had to choose Tampa would have been the Bucks was, was my choice for sure. Were you watching it on TV and did you get a phone call? Was that how it happened? So we, we did a little party with just family, a couple of friends, uh, you know, hoping that I would go on the first day. Cause if not, you know, can you imagine the disappointment of going to bed, not knowing where you get drafted? So uh, my agent was there and yes, I was in my room and I think I posted it. I'm going to show you, I'm sending you a video later, but my, my phone was bigger than my TV. I had a little TV in my room and <laughs> we kind of closed the door there and just waited and, uh, and really didn't get much, much action. You know, we didn't get any phone calls ahead of time, or any warnings that it was happening. So uh, when the phone rang and it was Rich McKay welcoming me to the team and then he passed me to Tony Dungy and said, Tony Dungy, welcome me to the team. Uh, I mean, it was like uh, one of those field goal celebrations. That's the way we're celebrating in my room. The um, And it didn't really hit me until I saw my name on the screen. You know, once I saw my name on ESPN, uh, then I'm like, man, it's legit. I, I'm, I'm really going to be a Buccaneer. So it was, uh, it was a, one of the, you know, there's a, a few uh, days and phone calls or things that happen in your life that you never forget. Uh, that phone call, when I talked to, uh, you know, Rich McKay and Tony Dungy, that's one that I'll never forget. 2015, the Bucks had the first overall pick again, and they drafted a quarterback again. Jason, what do you remember about the selection of Jameis Winston? Well, for all the Buccaneer fans, obviously everybody remembers Jameis uh, was a Florida State guy, um, won a national championship in 2013 at FSU. And I think there was no dis- no no, discuss- no discussion in the Bucs organization about what position they were going to take. I think they were going to take quarterback. It was just a, the discussion was, is it Winston or is it Mar- Marcus Mariota? Obviously, Winston had some issues at Florida State, off the field issues. There were some character questions. That, we, that, that was the big debate was, do you – do you weigh how much do you weigh the off the field issues with the on the field production? I think everybody thought Winston was a better on the field quarterback than Mariota, but it was the discussion of well, he had been he had been accused of of a sexual assault at Florida State. How much of that do you take into fact that you pick him number one? You give him all the, the 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 accolades of being the number one pick for the franchise. You make him the franchise quarterback. I think that was the main discussion in the Buccaneers front office about what to do. And ultimately they took, they decided they took the talent over the character. Uh, you know, obviously that, that can be debated five years, six, seven years later, you know, Winston did have an off the field issue as a Buccaneer quarterback out in Arizona um, and all that stuff. He got suspended for a couple games by the league for something. So, and obviously his on-field production did not match uh, the number one overall pick at, at, to this point. I think also if Mariota had been a really big success in the NFL, then you'd be a lot more critical of the pick. But because he struggled as well, I think really you can't really criticise the Buccaneers too much because neither of them turned out to be very successful. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, you're right. Mariota has been a very fledgling player. He's a backup quarterback. Um, You know, that was always the issue with Mariota. Could he be a true franchise quarterback in the NFL? He was a great college quarterback, but it was a completely different way of playing football than than he was going to be asked to play in the NFL. And ironically, as you know, who did the Buccaneers play in the week one of their first games of their careers? Marcus Mariota here in Tampa. Yes, and we all know what happened with Jameis' first NFL pass. The same as his last Buccaneer pass. It went for a pick six. Yes. yes. Actually, I've got a good Mariota story for you, actually. is that I was at one buck place in March 2015, and Mariota had come in for his pre-draft visit because each player can come in for a day. And I was having lunch with the Bucks PR staff, and Mariota was at the next table, 
with then quarterbacks coach Mike Bakajarian, and they're discussing formations and situations and game game yep. experiences. And I'm listening to this, and one of the Bucks PR guys looks at me and goes, "Paul." you can't write anything about this. And I'm like, no, that's absolutely fine. I think seven years later, I can talk about it, but it was really funny, the things I was hearing at the next table, and I couldn't say a word about it to anyone at the time. That's Yeah, that's pretty neat. Like I said, I don't think there was ever ever a question of who they thought that had the better physical tools, who could have been theoretically the better pro quarterback. I think Winston clearly had the – the advantage in that area is just the off the field issues was the big debate in the community, you know, about do you make him the number one pick in the draft because with the issues he had facing him, you know, I think, I think I mean, he never got charged with a crime, but civilly he had a, the civil lawsuit was, was the issue, you know, against him. And obviously he had the, the, uh, the issue at the, at the grocery store in Tallahassee as well. And then subsequently he had the issue with the Uber driver here as, as the Buccaneer quarterback. In 1976, the NFL draft was 17 rounds, and in the 16th round, the Buccaneers took a linebacker from Tennessee named Tom West. He hadn't been a linebacker in college, in fact he'd played tight end and a little bit of running back. He'd only played linebacker in high school. Not surprisingly, he did not make the 1976 team, and he never played professional football. Tom West. But if I said his name was Tommy West... The former head coach of both Clemson and Memphis, one of the same. Now, the recent Buccaneer draft picks have been getting phone calls from Tom Brady. Did anyone from the 99 Bucks reach out to you? No, no, I didn't have any. I didn't have any phone calls from players. I did. I did. You know, once I got drafted, I was like, man, I, I'm, I'm kind of worried. You know, I've heard the stories about Warren Sapp not being so nice that he might eat me when I get show up in the in the locker room. But uh, totally totally different than what I was anticipating. I, I actually feared going into a locker room with so many leaders because you don't know if you're going to fit in. But once I got there, uh, everybody welcomed me up with uh, open arms. Like I said, Warren's one of the best teammates I've ever had. Uh, he would do whatever for you if he's on your side. And, and uh, you know, Brooks, Lynch, those type of guys, to have them as leaders and role models and mentors early on in my career was huge, huge. I just remember – conversations that we would have with these guys after practice, you know, after you're sitting in the sauna and just, just chatting about life, uh, those, those type of relationships and that kind of advice is priceless. Hey, Martin, one of those relationships that Martin is, uh, is illuminating here is Jim Levitt, who had been the assistant coach at Kansas state. That was a big part, if not the key part of recruiting you to Kansas state and then at the time you're drafted, he's now the head coach at USF. How long before Coach Levitt was calling to congratulate you on being drafted by the Buccaneers who were now in the area where he was coaching college football? Yeah, I don't even know if the phone, uh, if I even hung up the phone before I got a call from Jim, Jim Levitt. <laughs> he's part of the family. I mean, he's been, he's been, uh, you know, he, Bill played for him. And uh, I wanted, I wanted to eventually, I wanted to transfer, transfer from Kansas State, come back to Florida because I wanted to be close to home and play for Jim Levitt. And he's like, no, I told Snyder I wouldn't take any of his Florida players because we had 22 guys from Florida at the time. Um, so he, yeah, he's part of the family. And then Santiago basically got a scholarship without him even watching one high school game. He just trusted the family and that he would work. And Santiago ended up, in my opinion, would have been the best of the three. Unfortunately, he had a really major uh, leg injury uh, his senior year. If not, he would have gone on and played for sure. So, so yeah, so Jim, Jim Levitt was definitely part of the family. He was part of, uh, part of all of it. I always, every time I see him, I thank him because without him, I would have never got to Kansas State. So a few years later, of course, your brother Bill got drafted. Was it similar similar experience for him? 
Yeah, it's very similar. On uh, He got drafted in the fourth round, so we did go to bed a little bit disappointed and now with a little anxiety because, you know, once you miss that first day, now you don't know where you're going to go. Uh, but, yeah, so he, he went in the fourth round to Arizona, and, uh, yeah, we were super excited. It was uh, especially to have two brothers, you know, that, you know, never dreamed of playing football. If you, if you think about it, I grew up in Argentina. Soccer was our life. Soccer what we played, and all of a sudden now we have two – brothers in the NFL, uh, it was definitely a great thing. Jason, who would you say the best draft pick the Buccaneers have ever made was? That's a great question, Paul. I would say, you know, the Bucs have had some really good draft picks, especially in the last 10 years or so, but I would have to go for value of where they got him in the draft and for what he turned into. I'd, you'd have to go Derek Brooks, Hall of Famer. They got him in the middle of the first round. You know, a lot of people weren't sure could Derek be a safety, a linebacker. And he was just the perfect fit for that Tony Dungy Tampa two defense as that weak side linebacker. So I think for as long as he played for the Buccaneers, as productive as he was, and for where they got him in the first round, I think Derek Brooks to me is the is the best draft pick in Buccaneer history. PJ, tell us about what you think is the best Buccaneer pick of recent memory. I think in recent memory, it's got to be Chris Godwin. I mean, for him to not be a first round pick, him to not be a second round pick, how many teams? Paul are just kicking themselves are, are putting a fist through the wall figuratively that we had a shot at least in the second round, even if nobody knew in the first round to take Chris Godwin wide receiver, Penn state, how do you not in the second round, take the chance on this guy, but Jason light and his staff uh, saw enough about his leadership, his toughness, maybe not, maybe not the game breaking speed, but still, Godwin does so many things well, block, et cetera, and he was doing it at Penn State. That, in terms of value and impact, and I know at the time that we're taping this podcast, he's coming off a serious knee injury, but I have zero doubt, none, no concern that he's going to be back in full force. That that guy is a Pro Bowl caliber receiver that they didn't have to spend or a first or a second round pick. If you're talking about value on what they got in return, give me Chris Godwin all day long. People often say NFL teams should try to win every game irrespective of draft position. I give you the 1989 Buccaneer draft. In 1988, the Bucs won their final game of the season against Detroit and so they picked sixth and not third. The first five picks of the 89 draft, Troy Aikman, Tony Mandarich, Barry Sanders, Derek Thomas and Dion Sanders. Four of those five would end up in the NFL Hall of Fame. The Buccaneers picking sixth took linebacker Broderick Thomas. He didn't make the Hall of Fame. Roy, you were uh, covered some interesting quarterback picks in your time, didn't you? Yeah, uh, during the time I was with the Buccaneers covering them, uh, or, or through most of it, at least at the Tampa Tribune, the team was always in search of a quarterback, it seemed. Um, they, they went out and got... Uh, uh, you know, some a couple of quarterbacks by 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 trade, obviously. But uh, you know, I went through. I was there for the Josh Freeman uh, era, if you can call it that. Chris Sims. I was there for obviously Jameis Winston. Um, so I've seen a lot of them uh, come and go. Most of them going pretty quickly. What What do you remember about the Chris Sims picks? I seem to hear you uh, heard an interesting story from the back room about that. Yeah, obviously Chris Sims drafted uh, the first year John Gruden is around, and obviously the Buccaneers need a quarterback. And uh, you know, here they are, middle rounds, and they're and Rich McKay is the general manager, and he's thinking, okay, well, we need a backup, and we, you know, because we're we're going to move ahead here, and 
we've got to pick somebody. And you, and so he's looking at it, and here's this kid out of Texas, uh, got some good bloodlines. He drafts Chris Sims, which, you know, I don't think anybody looked at at the moment and said, well, that's a horrible pick, except John Gruden went storming into Rich McKay's office as the draft is going on and screamed at the top of his lungs, don't you ever draft a quarterback that I don't know anything about ever again, and slammed the door shut and stormed back out. And uh, at the time, Rich McKay and his uh, his army of – and, again, this is an all one-buck place. So, so the war room was just one man's office. Um, they all kind of looked at each other. Uh, Tim Ruskell was in that in that meeting. A lot of uh, old uh, big names in the Buccaneers history it was in that meeting. They all kind of looked at each other and said, yeah, okay, who are we looking at? Who are we picking next? <laughs> they just basically completely ignored the whole moment. But uh, Gruden was not a fan of Chris Sims from the start. Uh, didn't like him, didn't like that he was left-handed because he was going to have to turn his offense around and uh, and restructure it a bit. Didn't like that idea, even though you know Chris Sims was a, certainly a serviceable quarterback and he played well enough to be a starter for him for a while. Uh, not well enough to keep the job, but um, uh, had, had he not get, been hurt, who knows? He, he could have been a he could have taken this team, you know, maybe maybe won some games for him and maybe taken the playoffs. Who knows? In 1976, Tampa Bay had selected the Selman brothers, with Dewey joining Leroy in the inaugural draft class. But 21 years later, history was made when twin brothers were taken in the same draft. We wanted to catch up with Rondé Barber, but he's been busy working on his golf game. So we spoke instead with Tiki for his memories of the two of them being drafted. His going to the Giants, followed by Rondé being drafted by the Buccaneers. It was a culmination of all this hard work and dedication and fulfilling the dream and getting ready to live the dream of making it to the NFL. And so um, we decided that we didn't want to like stress about it. So we went out and found a golf course right there in Charlottesville, uh, Birdwood Country Club, which is that it's the whole course of, of, of UVA golf. And we played around the golf. It really wasn't a lot of people out there, just me and him. And, um, you know, about the 16th hole, 15th or 16th hole, I get a call from Pat Hamlin. And he, the good thing about playing golf is that we weren't worried about it. Like, the draft was going on when we started. And we're not like, oh, I wonder what's happening now. Uh, I wonder what's happening. Where am I going to go? Uh, I thought I was going to get picked by Atlanta. Uh, I thought I was going to get picked by Green Bay. Like, we weren't, we weren't worried about it because we it was out of sight, out of mind, which was, which was great for us. Uh, and then Pat Hamlin called me, um, and I didn't really know who he was. I was like, Pat Hamlin? And he said, and this is exactly what he said. He said, hey, Tiki, this is Pat Hamlin. I, he might have said the Giants. I don't, I don't remember catching it. But he goes, hey, this is Tiki. Uh, this is Pat uh, Hamlin. I want to put you on uh, with, our, with our head coach, Jim Fossil. We're about to draft you. And I'm like, all right, Pat Hamlin, I don't really know. Um, Jim Fossil, it was his first year. So I was like, who the hell is Jim Fossil? <laughs> so I didn't realize where I was getting dragged. It took me like, I don't know, a good two or three minutes. Like, oh, wait, Giants. Okay, I can play. We're good. Um, and then, you know, we, back the next pick, I get drafted. And I didn't even see it, to be honest with you, because we were outside. Technology wasn't as what, what is it wasn't then what it is now. And so, um, you know, we get back to the clubhouse and, I'm sorry, I get phone calls and it, it was it was exciting, man. It was uh it was a dream come true. And then we had to wait like two hours or three hours until Rondé got drafted uh, at the beginning of the third round, exactly 30 picks after me. By that time we were a couple of beers in. I was gonna say, did you go back and play more golf holes or at this point watching uh, 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 the draft in the clubhouse or whatever? We went to the 19th hole. <laughs> we went to the 
for Riley to get his call, and then Tony called down uh, exactly 30 picks later. Tony Dungy to coach the Buccaneers, and the rest is history as Riley played his entire career for the Bucs, and Tiki played his entire career uh, for the Giants. What a story. And again, we keep relating this uh, to fans that now, uh, you know, in the present, for the last 10 years or so, or so it's been a multi-night, first round on one night, you know, second night as the second and third round, and then the Saturday conclusion. They used to do this all in one day on a Monday in a smoke-filled ballroom in New York. They progressed and did it all in one day on a Saturday um, for a long time. And the year you were drafted, they may have split part of it on Saturday, part of it on Sunday. But the reason you're talking about playing golf, they were going all day Saturday with the first, second, and third round. Tiki, it would go for like 12 hours, literally, for those three rounds on Saturday. It was epically long. I mean, let's put it this way. I was drafted, and it was still light outside. When Ronnie got drafted, it was already getting dark. <laughs> I mean, this is just three rounds. I mean, it just took forever back in the day. And the fanfare wasn't the same, you know? There was no cameras following guys around. There was no, you know, take the guy on the phone and have a conversation and do a media tour. We're going to fly you up in a week and a half. And it was none of that. It was just like, all right, we drafted you. We'll see you in four weeks when we have our rookie mini camp. All right, good luck. You know, have fun. <laughs> It's changed so much for a lot of these guys, um, but the, the feeling I believe is still the same. It's from you remember your little league coaches to your high school coaches to your college coaches and all those people. Uh, there's coaches and teammates. Those shoulders you're standing on finally lift you to this this moment where you're going to become an NFL player. I mean, it's it's awesome. It really is, and it's such a huge opportunity. Uh, that I hope a lot of these kids that are coming in now get to take advantage of. So, Scott, you've been at the draft. You went to the 2018 draft in Dallas where the Bucks drafted Vita Vea, didn't you? Yes, I did. It was an awesome experience. It was also the very first time that they had fans, sections of fans in front of the stage um, to cheer on their team when they were drafting players. And it was a great experience being inside Jerry's world, having it all set up for the draft like that. And, and Vita came down to talk to you guys after you'd been selected, didn't he? Yeah, it was it was more like a more like a high five, high fiving us all. And you could tell from from that moment he was a really uh, really jovial, nice guy. But uh, Vita was the one who I wanted all along, and you know half the crowd was was yelling, "Oh, I want Derwin James!" And I'm like, "No, you never you never uh, go over the guy that is in the trenches." And in the following year, you went to the draft in Nashville, and uh, the Bucks took Devin White, didn't they? Yes, they did. And uh, that was another uh, great experience. In fact, I think Nashville um, nailed it the way they had everything set up. And it was a very great experience. What's the uh, atmosphere like between the different groups of fans at the draft? Oh, the the atmosphere is good because, you know, what they do is every team does it differently. Like uh, like the Saints, for instance, will give it to all their corporate sponsors. So you see a bunch of Saints fans sitting on their hands and not doing much. Whereas the Bucks uh, offer the tickets to the long-term, you know, the long-standing uh, fans who are diehards who have been season ticket holders forever. And then all the Jets fans start crying when they don't get the player they want. Yeah, all the Jets fans will cry. And then, and then Dallas thinks they're going to the Super Bowl every time they pick a player, too. I think what's, what's great, Martin, is, is most fans have got no idea what it's like to go through the draft process. We just sit and look at all the mock drafts and, and we watch it on, on TV and we watch it unfold. We've got no idea what it's like. So you telling us this, we're getting a perspective of what it's like 
to be on the other end of that phone call. It, it's amazing. Oh, no, I'm, I'm glad I could share with you guys. But it, it, is, it is a, a nerve wracking time because you just don't know. You, you know, you're, you're going from being a college student to all of a sudden packing your bags and moving anywhere in the country. For me, it was an easy move because I was coming closer to home and I was coming to a city where my brother was going to school. My younger brother ended up going to school there. So it wasn't something that was splitting me from my family or, or, or my brother. So so that's why for me, it was an easy move, an easy transition. But, yeah, I can see where sometimes, you know, guys get drafted where they're, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles away from their family or home. It, it can't be easy. But at the end of the day, playing the, in the NFL and getting drafted is definitely an honor. In 1988, the Bucks used a fourth round pick on a punter, Monty Robbins. To this day, he still holds most Wolverine punting records, but he never played in the NFL. He punted seven times for a staggeringly bad 36.6 average for the Bucks in preseason and was cut. Roy, you uh, saw some interesting bad picks in your time, didn't you? As you well know, anyone who's followed this team could literally throw a dart at the board of every draft pick this team has ever made, good and bad, and probably not miss on hitting one of the worst. So it's it, it's really kind of a potpourri. Take your pick. I'll say Gaines Adams. Now, before I say, and, and just simply because he spent two years with the team, then was let go, didn't make it in the NFL, and then, look, unfortunately passed away. But the Buccaneers knew about the heart condition that ended up costing him his life and his career. They knew about that, yet they went and made that selection anyway. And you know, if you look back at it, there were some pretty good players like, let's see, Adrian Peterson was in that draft available when they picked. Uh, Daryl Rivas was in that draft available when the Buccaneers picked. Uh, a few more. So, and that's always a game you can play is, you know, you go back in hindsight, it's always 2020. But in this case, you knew that Gaines Adams had an issue and you chose to ignore the medical and take and roll the dice. And look, I can forgive them a little bit at the time because uh, again, they're trying to rebuild the defense. Uh, their leading sack uh, master, if you would call it that, the year before, Greg Spires, Dwayne White, before he even called himself Styles G. White with five sacks. Um, you know, you needed a defensive uh, strength, uh, a defensive end who could go after the quarterback. The problem is Gaines Adams didn't go after the quarterback very well either. He, he really didn't have many moves. Uh, wasn't uh, accomplished at uh, developing a, uh, a pass rush for himself. It was a little soft, and uh, it cost the Buccaneers and uh, obviously the Bears as well. And uh, you were there for the Roberto Aguayo pick as well, weren't you? Yes, I was. And I, look, the Buccaneers at, at that time had gone through many years, uh, had struggled to find a kicker. And, and, and look, pro, pro football people don't want to admit to this, but the kicker is the most important player on the team after the quarterback because no one's – the kicker is always the leading scorer. He's the guy you count on, you know, to get the, the, the field goals at the last minute to, to, to win you a game more often than not. Um, and the Buccaneers could not find a capable kicker. Uh, injuries had taken uh, away some. They, they scoured the, the waiver wire, as so many teams do. Couldn't find anybody competent enough. Uh, Roberto Aguayo was the best kicking prospect, arguably, in the history of the draft. To me, it made sense to draft him. It made sense to draft him where they did. I didn't have a problem with, they, with the fact that they traded up to get him. 
had it worked out the way the Bucks envisioned, no one ever, well, the argument would have been, you know, uh, mute after a year or two. The problem is it didn't work out. Roberto Aguayo got in his head. He, uh, he succumbed to the pressure, fan pressure, media pressure, the pressure of being selected where he was and never found his place in the league, which is unfortunate. Jason, who's the worst draft pick that you can remember? <laughs> well, this one's going to take you back to my youth. You, I know you remember this guy. I'm, I'm going to go 1991. I was a senior in high school going into college at Florida State. Charles McCray, number seven overall pick offensive lineman out of Tennessee. And we were just hoping he was going to be the next Paul Gruber kind of guy. We were hoping he was going to line up next to Gruber and be a Pro Bowl side of the offensive line. And he just could never really ever get his footing set in the NFL and was just never good enough to be a productive player for very long in the NFL for the Buccaneers. The one bad Buccaneer draft pick that still bugs me to this day, 32 years after it happened, is the selection of Keith McCants. Uh, 1990, the Bucks had the fourth overall pick, and Ray Perkins was on dodgy ground. He was going into his fourth season. He knew all about McCants from his time at Alabama, and he took a chance on the linebacker. Well, when I say took a chance, McCants was a very highly rated player, but he had knee issues, and there were real concerns about that going into the draft. And Perkins' comment was, well, if it doesn't work out, I won't be here anyway. Really nice long-term planning for the franchise there, coach. Well, McCants was a disaster. He did have knee injuries. He didn't play well at linebacker in his first year. They tried to move him to defensive end in 91, where he was even worse, and he was out of the Buccaneers equation within three years. The fourth overall pick on a complete bust like that. And all I can say was the next pick was linebacker Junior Seau. The one that I remember, obviously, the most vividly is is the the ill-fated selecting of Bo Jackson at number one overall. How can it be any worse than you take a guy number one overall who says, I refuse to play for you? And I so I so negatively don't want to be around and don't want to play. I'm going to go play Major League Baseball for the Kansas City Royals instead of playing for you until you trade my rights. I still remember this. The draft was on Monday at that time period, starting at like 8 o'clock in the morning and going all the way until midnight. And they did not take 15 minutes in between picks in the first round because they moved it along quicker. Think about that now, because right now you devote a full Thursday night to only the first round. And then you devote, and they've been doing this for a decade, you devote a full uh, five hours to the second and third round. And then on the third day, on the next night, on the third day, on the Saturday, you finish with the next three or four rounds of the draft. It was all in one day previously, the selection meeting, smoke-filled ballroom in New York. So I remember as a high school sophomore, a 16-year-old TJ, I, I'm, I'm debating about whether or not do I skip school or whether my father's like, you're going to school. My father's driving me to school. I don't yet have my driver's license. We're in the car, we're listening on the radio, and they go to the live coverage on whatever outlet, I don't think ESPN radio existed, but they went to some live feed of Paul Rose, uh, Pete Rosell in that in that room saying, with the number one overall pick in the 1986 draft, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers select Bo Jackson running back Auburn Tigers. And I'm like, I'm excited. We're going to get Bo Jackson. I didn't quite understand. There's such animosity. He's never going to play for you. So we were sit. I was sitting in the car listening to the radio before we went into school on the worst draft pick ever. And that has to be 
Vincent Edward Bo Jackson, number one overall Heisman running back from Auburn, never played a down for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It gets no worse than that, Paul. Everybody knows Bo Jackson turned down the Buccaneers to play Major League Baseball, but did you know there was a second Buccaneer draft pick who has the same honour? Tight end Mike Bush from Iowa State. He was a 10th round pick in 1990, but he never played a down for the Buccaneers, even in pre-season. He went on to pursue a career in baseball, having been also drafted in that sport that year, and he made it to the majors with the Los Angeles Dodgers in 1995. He would hit seven home runs in his brief two-year Major League Baseball career, and he went on to be a successful minor league coach. 1982 can be looked at one of the great draft disasters of all time. Forget the Buccaneers, this one goes down in history. Dennis, talk us through the the amazing story of Sean Farrell and Booker Reese. Booker Reese was a defensive end from Bethune-Cookman, which is a historically black college in Daytona Beach. You know, every year they had they used to have a big annual football game against Florida A&M at Tampa Stadium during this time. So some of the Tampa fans would have seen him play in person. Um but he wasn't really that well known nationally. It's just, it's, it's odd to me how obsessed the Buccaneers became with him because he didn't really have good showings in the postseason all-star games. Uh, so once he left uh, the MIAC level of football competition and started playing division one, he didn't show very well, but he had all of the intangibles that people were looking for. Um, the Buccaneers thought he could be their next Ed Tutal Jones. He's almost six foot seven, 260 pounds. He's got a four, six, 40 yard dash. So he, he's an amazing athletic presence at a position of need because the Bucks have been watching Leroy Selman gamely battle double and triple teams, but not really have anybody on the opposite side of the three, four defense who could take some of the pressure off of him. So this was like their their primary focus in this draft, and they were actually concerned that somebody else would draft Booker Reese before he became available. So what they did was they hedged their bets, and they put on a card Sean Farrell, who was a really good offensive lineman from the Pennsylvania State University, and Booker Reese. And Ken Herrick phones Pat Marcuschello, the equipment manager who's manning the phones. And we all remember those great, you know, helmet phones uh, that we would see on the NFL draft. And he says, write down these two names, Sean Farrell, Booker Reese. And the Bucks are drafting right before the New York Giants. And for those of you who don't remember, all of the drafts at this time was held at Radio City Music Hall, and Giant and Jet fans were up in the balcony just yelling their heads off. And so when Ken Herrick calls uh, Marcicello, he says, we've decided not to go with Farrell, we're going with Reese. Well, in all of this you know, cacophony of sound, Marcicello only hears Farrell. And so he goes up and he turns in the card. And this is one of the first NFL drafts to be televised on ESPN. So John McKay and everybody in the war room is sitting back watching ESPN. And they hear Pete Roselgo, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers select offensive guard, Sean Farrell, Penn State. And they lose their minds. 
They're immediately calling Marcuschello saying, go up there and tell him you made a mistake. Get him to rescind the pick. Get him to rescind the pick. Marcuschello is practically in tears begging Joe Brown of the NFL, please give us a do-over. It, it's just, you know, and Brown feels horribly sympathetic, but he's just got to look at Marcuschello and go, there's no do-overs. Your, your pick's in. So you guys have Sean Farrell. Um, I just... Oh, just, I wish, you know, it's one of those fly on the wall moments you wish you could have where, you know, you're there watching in reaction. And what was crazy is, is Farrell turned out to be a very, very good player for the next five years for the Buccaneers. But what made it worse is the war room at one buck place, then completely panicked, decided they had to get Bookerese at all costs and then traded with the Chicago Bears, it was an early second-round pick the Bears had. They gave up their first-round pick in 1983 so they could draft Booker Reese. Yes, and, and what, what makes it even worse? Number one, it's a division rival, the Bears. I always feel like the 1985 Chicago Bears should give Tampa Bay a Super Bowl ring because of how many players they ended up on that roster because of these trades. But... Um, the Bucks don't have a second round pick in 1982. They had traded it to Miami for Norris Thomas. And they, uh, so the, what they do is they trade their 1983 first round choice to Chicago to pick number 32. Now today, number 32 would be a first round pick, but with only 28 teams, that was a high second round pick. And they used that to draft Booker Reese. And like you said, the irony is that Sean Farrell was a vastly superior player to Booker Reese. Sean Farrell went on to an 11-year career, whereas Booker Reese was gone uh, within four years. And it's actually a very sad story. I don't want to make – I'll make fun of the pick, but not the man. Uh, Booker Reese had a lot of demons, and he's had a lot of struggles in his life. So he doesn't deserve to be the butt of a joke, but this – this particular draft case was one of the worst moments in history, not only because of what it cost them in 83, where they could have drafted Dan Marino at number 18, which is the pick they had. It's also all of the other players in the second round in 1982 that they missed. Think of Andre Tippett, the Hall of Fame linebacker, being a Buccaneer, or Mark Duper, or Bubba Paris, or even the punter, Ron Stark. As much as I liked Frank Garcia, imagine what an effective weapon Ron Stark would have been all those years. And and what I find so hilarious in doing the research is that day the Bucks thought that they did a great job. John McKay took the entire staff out to Malio's for a big dinner. And he argues this may have been our best draft ever. And within a year, it is just a comical, comical story. As the story goes, I still remember Eric Rett telling this story. Technology was different, et cetera. The draft was all on one day. Um, and he did not get drafted in the first round. And Paul's going to correct me with wherever he ended up. But the first round, he did end up in the, in the second round. The first round literally used to take six hours, five or six hours. And Eric was so angry that no one was taking him down at his home in uh, the Fort Lauderdale area that he left his house on a walk. No cell phones in these days, Paul and Martine. 
And there was no way to reach him when Sam White, Rich McKay, and the Buccaneers were trying to call to say, we're about to draft you. They can't find Eric Rett, literally, wow. uh, as he told the story. And Eric was gone for at least a half hour after the Buccaneers took him and it was on TV. And the Bucs still haven't talked to him yet. As Eric told the story, he was gone for like over an hour on this walk and came back with his family members like running down the street to grab him and saying, the Buccaneers took you, the Buccaneers took you in the second round, you know, hugging on him. And it was not as Rich McKay and Sam White related. It was not until at least 30 minutes, if I'm recalling correctly. Paul, I'm losing my mind after 30 years of these stories that this is a mid 1990 story, but it was at least 30 minutes maybe an hour before they talked to Eric Rett because he had left to pick up the point about draft stories. How about that? That's a, that's a great story. But yeah, it's, well, technology has changed things a lot too. The, the draft has changed too, where kids want to stay at their home and celebrate with their family instead of going to the actual draft, you know, even the top pick. So a lot, of, a lot has changed definitely with the draft. I, I, I liked it better when it was two days, you know, because right now it just dragged on, it drags on way too long. And I think it, well, obviously when, when it, it has to do with TV and media and money, then they're going to drag it as long as they can. But for the guys waiting for that phone call, uh, you know, you want it to be as quick as possible. So dragging it on for three days is kind of long, in my opinion. Some truly amazing stories, both good and bad, from 46 years of Tampa Bay NFL draft picks. But looking ahead to the 2022 edition, let's have a quick move around the table to see where our panel think the Bucks will be looking in the first round, albeit they're picking very late as befits a playoff team from last season. In the first round, they're either going to go the defensive tackle or offensive guard, in my opinion. And probably, I'm probably leading offensive guard. Well, given the, uh, the amazing bad luck with injuries in the defensive backfield last year and also the fact that Cooper Cup is still 10 yards back behind everybody in that playoff game, I would like to see them tighten up the secondary. So if they, if they use that best player available approach, which is one of the things they have been doing a lot recently, let's get some more speed and man-to-man coverage ability in the secondary. I think... Um... Theoretically, I think potentially defensive line. I think there's a couple defensive linemen that probably can be had to, to pair, pair up next to Vita Vea. Um, you know, a, a suit of you know, to, to if Sue comes back, you can ment- he could mentor under Sue and Vea for a year. Uh, if Sue doesn't come back, then that player could potentially step in and play. And the other position is potentially wide receiver. If one of the wide receivers were to slip in the first round, it's a very rich wide receiver class. If one of the receivers were to slip, I could definitely see the Buccaneers taking a wide receiver in the first round. Obviously not know what Chris Godwin's situation is going to be to start the year. You need some depth. Mike Evans is getting a little older and you need a, you need a, you need an influx of, of, of skill at the wide receiver position. Well, the Bucs are so unaccustomed to selecting this deep in the draft. They're, they're, they're accustomed to being in the top 10. It's not the top five. They're in the bottom third again. Um, it, it's a different dynamic you have to sit there and kind of wait for the draft to come to you. Although this might be a year when you might want to package some picks and move up, but I wouldn't do that. Here's why. From what I'm hearing about this draft is it's, it's a deeper draft. It's not necessarily a star studded draft. And I think the bucks need help everywhere. They are on the brink. It's going to be very close. It won't happen this year, but probably next year, they're going to have to start to rebuild this football team. They haven't, they've really concentrated on winning now for the last couple of years. That'll be more the concentration again this year. But at some point, you've got to really start thinking ahead. And 
I think it happens next year, not this year. So I'm looking at defensive linemen. Uh, I'm looking at offensive linemen. You've got to replace Ali Marpet. Never a problem to take uh, a defensive back early on. Might be a little bit soon for a safety, but in that bottom third, if you've lost Jordan Whitehead, which they have, if you can find a big power hitter like that, um, I would go after that guy. So it's a toss-up. You can do anything you wanted there and not be wrong. Um, but I would think that the probably the top um, the top targets are a defensive lineman, more likely an end, uh, a defensive back, and an offensive lineman, more likely a guard. You know, so many different years, my friend. We have a top ten, a top five, if not the number one overall pick. It was so easy when it was Jameis Winston or Marcus Mariota for the number one overall pick. Here you're picking what, 26, 27, we think, unless you trade up. I would say, world according to TJ, you're looking at defensive help and probably defensive line or defensive back. Defensive line because Indomitian Sue, even if he plays this year, is not a long-term solution. William Golston on a one-year deal. Probably, I think you're going to focus on defensive tackle maybe late in that first round. And if not, maybe best available cover corner. You can't have enough of those. So I'm going to go one and one A. Best available defensive tackle, if not best available defensive back late in the 2022 draft. But the BUC... C-A-N-E-E-R-S. Go Bucks. And there we must call an end to another great BuckPower.com podcast. My thanks to Tiki Barber, Scott Bradford, Dennis Crawford, Roy Cummings, Martin Gramatica, Jason Powers and TJ Reeves. From me, Paul Stewart, thank you for listening and please subscribe, rate and review this podcast wherever you get your downloads from. We will be back throughout the 2022 season with weekly shows, as well as looking back at memorable games from Buck history with many former players lined up to join us. And you can catch daily updates on buckpower.com, of course, and through social media. We are currently running a countdown of the top 100 plays in team history. A little spoiler, someone featured on this podcast may be number one. Go Bucks! Shine. Hey, hey, Tampa Bay, the Bucks know how to shine. Give it to you.